You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Hello, and welcome to an author debriefing from the International Spy Museum. I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Here at the museum, we get the most interesting authors, including journalists, scholars, former spies, and intelligence officers coming in to speak with our visitors and answer questions about their latest works dealing with espionage, intelligence, and other national security issues. Please join me in listening to another of our selected hour-long author debriefings. Uh, You are going to be hearing and I think it's a rare privilege, from one of the most distinguished officers in CIA. And Jack was distinguished specifically in the area of operations, clandestine or covert operations. And uh, he has, as you know, uh, done a book called Good Hunting, which is as, as good a description I know of the sort of work that we did in looking for sources. Uh, and Jack, by the way, will be available afterwards uh, to sign the book in the back. So I'll leave that right here, Jack. You wanted to, to use it. I don't know, as an aid memoir, you wanted to read, read from it? Or... <laughs> there are no illustrations. Okay. Jack was in the agency for 32 years. Uh, he had a variety of assignments as a case officer, a street officer, if you will, and worked his way up. At one point, chief of the Latin American division, head of the counter-narcotics center, he headed the CIA's Afghan task force. What Hollywood calls Charlie Wilson's war was in part Jack Devine's war. Okay, so he can certainly comment on the aspects of that, maybe not the Hollywood aspects. Um, And he's a recipient of the agency's DIM, or Distinguished Intelligence Medal, which is the highest one we award. Uh, He has, I think to his great credit, been an outspoken uh, retired officer of CIA in retiring. That is, he has tried to explain CIA to the public. Jack believes, as a number of us do, that it's one of the more misunderstood agencies of government and that it's important for the American public since they pay for it, to understand it and to understand the operations to the extent that they can be shared with the public. He's done articles for the Financial Times, the Washington Post, World Policy Journal, Miami Herald, and I think you've been on all the major networks, uh, interviewed on the major networks uh, as well, Jack. He resides in New York City, which he loves. He's on the Council of Foreign Relations, 
and I think also this is important, he's a board member of the CIA Memorial Foundation, and that is the foundation that was founded to provide for the children of officers struck down in the line of duty, and that provides for their education. Uh, he is currently, and I think has been since you retired, he was the founding partner, uh, founding partner and president of the Arkin Group in New York City. Uh, let me just add one word, having been a colleague uh, in CIA. There are many people who have retired from CIA. Uh, I would not refer to all of them as one of the most distinguished officers of CIA, as I just did, nor would I refer to all of them as being highly respected by their colleagues throughout their career. And Jack was one of those. He enjoyed all of our respect. I don't. I was going to say affection, but I think that's too strong. Yes. <laughs> anyway, uh, <clears throat> please help me welcome Jack Devine. His voice is just that. So today you're going to hear the other Jack. So actually, I should even start on that. You know, you shouldn't talk about how much you like your own book. <laughs> you know. But if you put so much work in it, one of the things I like, which I have virtually nothing to do with, was the cover. And if you look at it, I mean, that's one sinister-looking person. Um, and one of my employees took it home to her daughter, and uh, the daughter said, Mommy, I, I thought he was a nice man. <laughs> so the reason, uh, I mean, I'll just wander here a little bit. Um, the reason I like it uh, is, you know, sometimes you don't, you see yourself differently than others see you. And I always saw myself as an easygoing, sort of uh, lighthearted fellow. But when I was in, uh, in Mexico, the ambassador uh, was going up the elevator with a very famous uh, CIA fellow by the name of Tom Polgar, who was the last chief out of Vietnam. And Tom said, look, I think I'm going to send Devine out on that task. And the ambassador said, you don't mean that big, sinister-looking guy. <laughs> so I went home, and you know, this is when I was in my 30s. And I said to my wife, Pat, I said, you know what the ambassador said? He said, you know, was, he referred to me as a sinister-looking guy. And she said, well, you know, to be honest, Jack, if I didn't know you and I walked in and saw that face, I would turn around and walk out. Now, mind you, this is the mother of my children and so on. And uh, so then I went to one of my colleagues who I thought was coming today, but I think I'm going to meet him later. He said, well, Jack, you know, sometimes you ever see how you talk when you lean in and you do this? He said, yeah, you are a sinister looking guy. Well. I am what I am, I guess. But sometimes uh, looks are very helpful. And I did a piece with Show uh, Homeland. Uh, uh, Showtime does a promotion uh, with it. And you know you arrive in New York when you're in that 30-second thing in the cab where your picture <laughs> appears. Uh, so that's my, my Hollywood uh, connection. But um, in the process of it, there was a board, or actually there was a group like this, and then you had a panel with two of the act actors and two, uh, two panelists that were professional intelligence types. John Miller, who's on 
who used to be on CBS, an FBI officer, senior FBI officer, and now is the deputy uh, commissioner of New York's police department for intelligence. But one of the questions was, well, how much is operating like a, a spy master, those who run other spies, how much, how much acting is involved? And that, no one ever asked me that question. <clears throat> and, you know, you think about it. I said, well, you know, you walk in the door, they give you a different name. You know, you play different roles. Your relationships with people uh, many times are acting. Your counterparts are people that you wouldn't take home to dinner. Uh, and, uh, you know, you need to have a relationship with them. And where that, uh, that unintended look came in handy, uh, when President Clinton was in the White House, the National Security Director was a fellow named Tony Lake and Sandy Berger. And on that, in that campaign, they decided that they, they appealed to the Haitian voters in Miami, because, uh, in Florida, because it was a, an important state in the election. And they promised to put the democratically elected President Aristide back in power. But <clears throat> uh, he'd been thrown out by the police and the military. And uh, that's a strong commitment. And when the President of the United States decides he's going to do something like that and calls him the CIA, then your responsibility is to jump, too. So I was called down to the White House. And uh, Tony Lake and Sandy Berger said, look, you go down and you tell the chief of police the following. And then he's going to say this, and then you say that, and then you say this. And I said, that's great, guys. That's terrific. I'm going to do that. Now, first of all, the assignment was to go down into a foreign country, which the, the dictators control everything, and I'm going to go down and tell them to get out of town. <laughs> Most rational people would think that might not be a great idea. I thought it was a terrific idea. So I did go down. Um, and we had intelligence from our chief down there that the chief of police had gone out and gone to the voodoo doctor and sprayed himself, had himself sprayed with white dust because to fend off this evil person from the, the north. So I showed up and it was in the chief's house and there were just the three of us. He wouldn't touch a glass of water. He wouldn't have anything because he was fearful. And for those of you that ever been involved in poisoning, you know that um, pumpkin soup is really good because it conceals the aftertaste of most poisons. So un, unscripted, the maid came in with three bowls of pumpkin soup. I, th <laughs> I thought he was, was going to die on the spot. But I'm, uh, I come from Irish heritage, so you can't just do a script. You have to have, uh, you have to turn it into something more poetic. So I remember a Latin friend of mine gave me a very good piece of advice. He said, look, Jack, you Americans are like that tr train barreling down the track. And uh, we're the rooster in the middle of that track. We see you barreling down. We puff out our chest and say, bring it on. It's very important to understand that concept when you're working in Latin America. But I thought I would use that poetic license and say, you don't want to be that rooster in the middle of the track. And it was, I thought it was delivered quite well, using that best look I had. Now, he decided not to leave, despite the fact that it had a beautiful Gucci bag that had uh, 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 value treasure in it. So there was an alternative. 
But they did drop, uh, they did fold the following week because Jimmy Carter was negotiating with them at the table and they had a spotter down in Miami. The planes were taking off and our CIA, covert action infrastructure was, we actually had a group surrender to us before the, before the group landed, before our troops landed. Once the planes got off the ground, the dictators then folded. And where do good dictators go in the Caribbean? Well, they go to Miami. So the chief of police that I gave my rooster story gets on the radio. I actually saw from Phibis, this is a broadcasting coverage of overt media, that he said, well, they sent this big sinister guy down and said uh, he was going to kill me, my wife, and uh, my children. And I certainly never said anything about his wife or children. Uh, so, but... Uh, the point that I'm making is that it was really uh, um, the fact that you do have to play a role and that your mission is uh, sometimes one that uh, requires a level of persuasive, persuasiveness. Um, the book is entitled Good Hunting. It took three years to get the book done. I thought it would be a year and a half, absolute most. And, and took two years to come up with two, two words, good hunting. Um, I said, uh, the, uh, the good hunting expression, I almost called it Easter Island Man. And uh, I thought, well, that sounds too much like a novel. But uh, the British service has nicknames for all the American chiefs. So mine was Easter Island Man, and I never understood whether there was a similarity between <laughs> a and Easter Island Man. But um, that was far superior to my predecessor, too, removed. He was called the Poison Dwarf. So I think I would take e the Easter Island Man and run with it. But um, then I thought, you know, one of the things that really intrigued me through my career was how many times people came into my office, uh, foreigners, and said, look, uh, the, my country's falling apart. All it takes is a spark. Now, the reason I mention it, it doesn't take a spark. To change political regimes, it requires hard work, infrastructure, plumbing, planning, coordination, Washington uh, signing on in different offices. In other words, it's real hard work. And once you start, a, start something and you don't have a good sense of what lies beyond it, you're playing with fire, as they say. So, but someone said to me, look, if you said all it takes is a spark, many readers are going to think, oh, all it takes is a spark. So I, I got away from it. And then I happened to be watching an old, uh, Turner Classic movie. And one of the things that I always romanticize about is the World War II, I wasn't <laughs> in this OSS or CIA, believe me, but the jumping in behind the lines, organizing the partisans. I mean, that was a very special generation of people that preceded me. And uh, I'll make a footnote on that in a second. But as the partisans were breaking up, one of them said to the others, good hunting. And it reminded me how often 
I had personally signed off on cables because it is an operational expression. As far as I can make out, it goes back to Kipling and Jungle Book. But good hunting, you know, gets at what I consider the core of the business. Get Bin Laden, get new sources of information. Find the mole, Rick Ames, who I'll talk about in a minute, inside of CIA. In other words, hunting is very much um, a part of the business. So I, I settled on it. Now, <clears throat> the footnote that I was going to mention, if you go into CIA, and we were talking earlier, it's really a magnificent-looking building. I think we would have rather have stayed downtown here at D.C. rather than going out to Langley. No offense to Virginia. But it did change the culture a tad. Um, but <clears throat> the, when you go into the building, you have the paintings of all the directors on, on the wall. It takes about a year and a half to paint one of them um, for lasting memories. Uh, I knew 11 of them personally, worked for them. On the right side, which I find much more interesting, but that slipped out, <laughs> is the very, there's a set of paintings which they're starting that are painted by the museum. And uh, the first one is of a woman named Virginia Hall. And uh, she had retired before I joined, but she was back for some ceremony, and she was walking by, and I was a kid. And she was limping, and I said, well, what happened to the woman? She said, well, that's, that's Virginia Hall, as if you're all supposed to stand straight. When you say Jack Platson, you're supposed to stand up straight, you know? So, and I said, well, what happened? She said, well, Virginia is the most highly de decorated operator during World War II because she was decorated with the highest medals from the Brits, the French, and the Americans. And she came from a family of some money, was hunting in uh, Turkey, and had a hunting accident, lost the, uh, her leg, or the bottom part of her leg. But the exciting thing about Virginia is when World War II came, she spoke beautiful French. She jumped in behind the lines in France with the prosthetic leg over her shoulder. Now, that to me is, you know, and she was the most wanted spy in Germany. So the picture of her is in uh, a World War II type hut in France, cranking out, uh, cranking out uh, messages. So, um, the, there's two parts of, of the intelligence business in its simplest terms. One is the espionage, spying part. And if you think of Le Carre's George Smiley plodding along betrayal, you get the sense of what that is. The other one is a very controversial one. There's people make peace with espionage either, easier than the other one. And that's covert action. And I just described Virginia Hall, and that's covert action. You're out there organizing some group of partisan. There's some lethality that uh, is attached to it. That's the action part. And in CIA's charter, there's only one short expression. <coughs> it says, carry out those special activities as directed by the President of the United States. That's the full extent of CIA's authority. But every president since Washington forward has needed some mechanism to both collect information and to try and do things below the radar. Uh, Eisenhower authorized 300 covert action operations, which I was somewhat surprised when I, when I read that. That's the action part. That's the James Bond, you know. That's the uh, never meeting an agent, never 
speaking a foreign language, just out there booming and banging. But that is the action, action part. The book, it's hard to write about the espionage part. I do write at some length about counterintelligence, and that's Rick Ames penetrating CIA, working for the Russians. Because it's hard to talk about all the agents that we've run over the years. I was more interested in the covert action piece to write about it, because it's the least understood part of CIA, as you said earlier, some misunderstandings. It's very controversial. I was in Chile when Allende was overthrown, uh, middle of the Iran-Contra, the Afghan program to drive the Russians out of Afghanistan, the hunt for us. All of these things are action programs. I've done a fair amount of study, and there's a historian here with us today. I know personally of no covert action that was ever taken, that wasn't specifically authorized in writing by the President of the United States. Most people don't realize that. So if you have a problem with uh, installing the Shah of Iran or uh, in uh, what's happening today in Iraq or Afghanistan, you must think about the policymaker. That is really the greatest misunderstanding, and CIA usually is the, the burden is put on them. So I thought that I would approach my own experience, which was 50% spying, and 50% covert action, which is the fluke. Except when I wrote the book and I looked back, I realized I was running towards it and the agency was pulling to me towards it because it, it's like football, you know, you're either a quarterback or an end, you know, or a blocking, you know, center. So I think I was moving towards a specific type of, of work. So <clears throat> it's about the action part. And, you know, some of the things that happen to you in life. So how do you get in the CIA in the first place? And I come from a very uh, uh, parochial sort of environment. I, my traveling involved going with the Boy Scouts to Canada, and I think our honeymoon to Bermuda was the extent of what I knew about the world. And there was so little written about CIA. Today, every major newspaper has two journalists assigned to it just to report on CIA. And if you go to the library, there are now books upon books that have been written. But in 1967, when I joined the agency, there was very little. There was the Bay of Pigs came up, blew, it was a big blowout. That passed, and then there was very little, uh, uh, very little written uh, about, about covert action. I was teaching school in uh, suburban Philadelphia. And I like teaching school. That was great fun. But I, I don't think I could go on 40 years uh, teaching. It just wasn't in my... Uh, I think we need to give tribute to teachers that teach Algebra one for 40 years with the same enthusiasm. Uh, did I find a, an Algebra one teacher here? <laughs> but, I mean, that, that's what holds our school system together. I mean, I had a great time. I probably got more out of it. I found it was a great skill to have in the CIA. Because, as I said earlier about all it takes is part, teachers have to be organized. And let's face it, if you can keep a group of 16-year-old kids uh, listening to you, certainly can talk to the United States Senate. Uh, <laughs> was that recorded? Was that recorded? So, um, but, you know, I was enjoying it. I was probably going to go on and do, uh, you know, uh, pursue, uh, I had a master's degree, and I was thinking, well, maybe I'll do you know, some additional graduate work. And 
My wife gave me a book. It was called The Invisible Government. And the book was a scan, you know, a scandalous book. It was a cream puff by today's standard, but it talked about the military intelligence complex and how it was you know, ruling this country. And I thought, well, that's kind of interesting. <laughs> so instead of being repulsed by it, I decided to send a letter where you wrote in ink and pen off to uh, a CIA headquarters, and lo and behold, one thing led to another, and I ended up in, in, uh, in CIA. Um, and then you go through the training process, and uh, you, know, you learn how to be a spy, you learn how to elicit information, and then you have the paramilitary uh, uh, things. So you learn about all the weapons there are, and uh, you get training, demolition training. And uh, what I found very curious is, and I don't, be I, I, I don't believe this was done as show, but the fellow that came in to give the presentation was missing a couple fingers and had a scar on his head. And his, and his comment was, you know, it's very dangerous. You've got to pay attention. <laughs> I thought, wow, I got that one. I, you don't have to send tell me that one twice. But when you're, when you're blowing up things, you have a detonating cord, and it burns at a certain rate. So you blow up poles one after another, and you have five people lined up and blow up one pole after another. Well, I was married, had a few children at the time, and I thought, well, prudence would indicate that I should add another few inches to the, you know, the burning cord. Because once you set it, you're, you're supposed to walk, not run. If you run, you could fall, and bad things can happen. You end up with a scar and missing a couple of fingers. <laughs> <laughs> but so... I would walk, and poll number one would go one, three, four, and then you go back to number two. And they really frowned on it. Um, and in my file, it says something like, uh, do not let this man near explosives. <laughs> in 1985, I was responsible, responsible for more explosives than anybody in the history of the agency. So there's something about your training and, and your experience. The other thing was, I was just talking about Virginia Hall and, you know, the courage and the, you know, the commitment. When I got around to jumping, it was voluntary. And it was like two weeks off, not even admin leave in the building. You just took two weeks off. And uh, I have a house in Ocean City, New Jersey, and uh, that's how I would spend two sensible weeks. So I mentioned it to my wife, and she said, you're going to miss the camaraderie. It's going to mean so much to you as the years go by. I said, well... Okay, but we're talking two weeks at the beach here. <laughs> she was right, but I didn't appreciate it. And I said, no, that's not going to work. And then I went to the base club, and they had a colonel. And the colonel comes over, it's Jack, it's, it's jumping is better than sex. And I thought, wow, that's interesting. And then I looked at him, and I realized he was missing a bolt. So, so, so I wasn't, I wasn't, I wasn't going to jump. And I am so glad that I did, but what happened is... I didn't know any better. CIA had a staff called Covert Action Staff, but they were staff. They really had nothing to do with the action part. So when it came time to go to a division, I put down, well, I'll go to the Covert Action Staff. That's where the action is. I didn't know any better. So I walked in. There was a fellow who uh, was uh, a paramilitary uh, enthusiast, uh, a really fine officer, but he had jumping memorabilia in the office. And I walked in, and he said, Jack, before he, anything he said to us, Jack, 
have you jumped yet? It's the greatest thing a man can do. And I said, no, but boy, am I looking forward to it. <laughs> that was for careerism, I was jumping out of that plane. And so I did. And I think there's the difference between Virginia Hall and Jack Devine. Um, so you, you, know, you, you go through the training, and then at the end, you literally do get selected to go places. And I thought, well, if it's not covert action, it has to be Russia. And truth of the matter about Russia, it's a much more restricted environment. In other words, you spend many, many days trying to put down something in a rock that someone can pick up a week later. And God forbid, you, once a year, you might meet somebody. So it's very, it's very, very uh, detailed, um, focused. And that <coughs> highly valuable, but it's not what I like to do. I like to mix it up with people and be where the action is. So I didn't know that. So when the counselor came to me, he said, you're too tall <laughs> to be a spy in Russia. And I thought, well, this is when you really don't know what you're doing. He said, well, I guess I am too tall. You know, um, I have a great picture if I can, <laughs> you know, the things that, I have jokes, you don't know it, I'm the only one enjoying my own personal jokes, but the cover, the cover is one, but then there's another one in here that I put in for effect, you can't see it, but this is, the, these are the Andy Mountains in the background. I have long hair that comes down around my shoulder, I got a mustache like Pancho Villa, but the winning piece, if you've seen the movie American Hustle, these are those disco pants <laughs> with the bell bottoms. Now, to save, I wanted to make a point, but I didn't want to go too far. I didn't put it in color because they were yellow. <laughs> so the point is, well, how can you be a spy at six foot five and be looking at? Well, the point is, you don't spy when you're visible. I mean, you, you're carrying out things when you are not seen. You know, and, and that is the the essence of it. So being six foot five was irrelevant. What it turned out was he was recruiting people. He had a quota. He had to fill a quota for Latin America. So I ended up in Latin America. If I was too tall for Russia, I wasn't quite sure how I was <laughs> appropriate height for Latin America. But it was the best thing that happened to me. And it was the best thing because Chile is an action. Uh, at that point, you had Vietnam on one end of the world. And second highest priority was Chile because it was concerned that Cuba was uh, proselytizing very effectively communist doctrine and that it was contagious and that they were interested through the election battles to bring a, a communist country to power. And that's where the attention focused on, on Chile. So I was thrown right into it, into the covert action piece. And <clears throat> when you publish a book, I didn't know this, they have things called first serial rights. Somebody can bid and be the first one to publish part of it. So Foreign Affairs Magazine picked the Chile chapter. And I thought, wow, that's, you know, it's 40 years ago. But it's such a hot button, even today, academically, you know, it's sort of an issue of foreign policy that's discussed as a uh, very controversial thing in CIA un unquestionably overthrew IND. And it's, um, I'm never going to be able to convince people otherwise that, are, that have made a, invested so heavily in that view. Peter, help me if I get too if we're getting too far into it. But when, and, and there's, I talk about good and bad covert action. I talk about what are the principles. When do you use force? It's an old argument. It's not my original one. It's like from... 
14th century theologians talk about a just war. And, uh, and I, I crib from it and, and add to it. But you have to think through when, uh, uh, when you're using force. But what happened was in that environment, uh, President Nixon and Henry Kissinger decided that we were going to stop Salvador Allende, who had just been elected with the plurality, from taking office a month and a half or two months later. And uh, the CIA was instructed in 1970 to try and overthrow Allende. No question about it. There's no if, buts, ands, ors. The chief of station was a very distinguished officer from that World War II generation. And uh, he wrote very well, I must say. And he wrote a cable back saying, look, this isn't going to work. There isn't enough time. Most importantly, the conditions aren't right on the ground, and we're going to have bloodshed, and this is, this is a bad idea. And the White House came back, and it wasn't phrased this way, but at the same intent. Well, give it the old college try anyway. <laughs> and this is where I come back to that point. CIA was instructed, and it carried out its mission. And it was a failure. It was a disaster. He was right. The conditions weren't there. Even the White House recognized at the last minute, but there was a group that we knew about, but we were not funding, um, that tried to kidnap the commander chief of the armed forces as to kick the spark, you know, that get that spark, everything will fall from it. And they killed the commander chief in the process. That day, the entire country turned uh, behind Allende, and he was put into office. Shortly thereafter, in fact, I, uh, there's no doubt that a cable came from Kissinger, I mean Kissinger to the CIA, cease and desist with the coup plotting, support the opposition, support the parties, the women, you know, do, the unions, <clears throat> but do not plot with the military. And that was sacrosanct. We just didn't plot with the military. Our sources weren't even that good. The assessment of Pinochet was that he was actually too weak to lead a coup in any case. So when you fast forward to 1973, I should put a footnote, all of the documents, everything that I wrote that was germane is now in the public record. When I was still at CIA and I was responsible for all of CIA's world operations, when the young chiefs were going out, I said, look, you want to embrace covert action, that's your responsibility, but do believe that you will see in your lifetime your cables and what you did, so make sure you can live with that. Uh, I think there's some people today that could have benefited from that. But my, my point is, all of the documents were declassified. Uh, fortunately, I didn't spell too many of them, uh, too many words incorrectly. <laughs> But every once in a while, you'll see a sick, and that makes you like, oh, God. I guess, you know, another preposition at the end of a sentence. Um, and the way we found out is actually an agent of ours called my wife and said, there's going to be a coup on September 11th. I'm leaving town. I'm at the airport. But, but um, there's going to be a coup. Tell Jack. So that was the first way we actually found out about it, not from the military. Our source was someone on the periphery of the military. And uh, I w we were able to get a couple other reports. I was in the embassy the night the coup took place. But 
the issue very clearly is that the military overthrew Allende because the combination of the conditions were so bad in the country, but the real reason they moved is their own units were starting to, uh, to take independent, independent action coup-like. So they decided they were going to be in charge of it and handle that. that. So it's very controversial. I've written this article, Foreign Affairs. Uh, someone who's disagreed with that view has now written a rebuttal, and I get to write a rebuttal. They have written it, and it'll be in the August and September issue, or the one coming out. And as I said, people will remain in their fixed positions. I think my contribution is I was actually in that station, and I'm still alive. A lot of them aren't. And that I know just how many people we had and what the conditions were. So for, I think for our historian, there is a, a marker there. I won't allow time for questions, but I'm just going to do a couple things really fast to do this. Um, I served in other Latin American countries. And I thought, well, a, a change of pace would be in order. So this is 1985. And sometimes my decisions uh, are memorable. Um, so where did I go in 1985? To the Iran branch. Now, I, I know people of a certain age are laughing because they remember 1985 is when the Iran-Contra affair, uh, actually unfolded in 86, but it started. And this was, I use it because it's a really bad example of covert action. And it was the, the White House decided, well-intentioned, to trade missiles for hostages. But it was against our own policy. We've discouraged it for many years. It was a bad policy decision. But you could argue about that. But they selected somebody who was a well-known fabricator of information and a dishonorable person. In fact, CIA had put out two burn notices. Do not go near this person. But there was somebody in the White House staff that thought he was an honorable person. And they actually put through a flight in which the CIA was not involved. And I was called to go and meet him. And uh, it was around Christmas time. Actually, it's not too far from here. Where, And I went to the uh, fellow in the White House's um, home, and he told me the story, and I thought, oh my god, this is terrible. So <clears throat> we met in the director's office, and I said, why don't we polygraph him? Because I knew the deck would be loaded, that he was not going to pass it and be all over. And he did. He flunked every question. I think he got the name, but I'm not even sure <laughs> of the name. And it was in a hotel. It's ironic. It's in a hotel that wasn't too far from, from here. I was told at a certain point, we were supposed to go up and brief Casey, and we got a call saying, don't bother. We're out of it. We're not going to be involved anymore. And I thought, oh, geez, I really pulled a good one for the Gipper here. I got us out of this by polygraphing. Well, I didn't know that the director handed it off to somebody else in another, uh, the analytical component. And a few months later in February, I got a call by the chief of the Middle East saying, Jack, we know you don't want to deal with Gobani Far. <clears throat> but would you organize the flights? And I thought, well, better to organize the flights, even though I don't like this idea. But I was young, and I thought, it's such a bad idea, it's not going to happen anyway. But then I remember, now I remember, not then, that George Schultz once said, no bad idea dies in Washington. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and I would tell young people that, that 
you know, just because it's a bad idea doesn't mean it isn't going to happen. It's not going to be executed. So if you're in a position where you can kill it, you try and kill it, you do everything you can. doesn't mean you'll prevail, but try. And I should have probably tried harder, but I thought I'd, well, I thought I'd capped it off. And then I remember being in the watch center as the flights were heading towards Iran. <laughs> this is unbelievable, but never again count on something dying. That was just bad policy. Where it became a problem is that we charged a million dollars for each missile, <coughs> tow missile, and uh, the Iranians paid two, and one million went to Central America, and that was breaking the law. That second million was money that was taken out of the Afghan effort and pushed into into Central America. That was not known by people working on the Afghan program and only a few in the Contra. The breaking of the Boland Amendment that prohibited that uh, was what really almost brought the Reagan administration down. So most bad covert actions are those things that are handled in the back room. They're not vetted with all the different agencies. It's. Uh, it's not briefed down on the Hill. And I'm a big believer in briefing and oversight because Congress, even I was kidding about it earlier, <clears throat> they have a simple, uh, on one level, simple task, and that is to satisfy the American people. They're there to represent the American people. So a really good congressman, congressman is only going to do those things that they can stand up in their constituency. So if you have to brief them, and one of my conditions that the theologians weren't aware of in the 1400s, 1300s, how important it is that bipartisan support. And if you can't get bipartisan support, then maybe you shouldn't be doing it. But they represent a constituency that no uh, public servant has. And, and that's why uh, things like the Iran-Contra were bad. Um, I went from there to Charlie Wilson's uh, war. It wasn't Charlie's war, but you know, you got to give it to him. If you can have a war named after it, it wasn't you. <laughs> you know, so I am pleased that I knew Charlie. There's a, you know, the movie out, uh, Charlie Wilson's War, but, and he was a really smart guy, flamboyant for sure. I was never quite sure how much was show and real, but there was enough real there to, to make him a, quite an interesting guy. And he came to visit. He had left the Congress, and I had left the agency. And he called when I was in New York, and uh, he said, "I want to have a let's have a steak dinner with you and your wife and mine, and let's go to the Sparks restaurant." Well, if you're not from New York, you might not know, but that's where Paul Castellano, the head of the mafia, was gunned down on the steps. That appealed to <laughs> Charlie's sense of romance. So, but what was more important? was when we sat down, he said, Jack, you know, I know you didn't like the book. You're going to hate the movie. <laughs> and he knew. I mean, we, the, Charlie was very important, and he brought money and interest, and he was truly dedicated to it and thought it was key to our national interests, and he gets high praise for it. The truth is you had a Republican president and a Democratic Congress that agreed that this ought to be done. The American people were behind it. You had um, ample funding. A lot of times you get money and it's just to make everybody feel good and say you've done it. Do not do covert action unless you really want to throw your full weight behind it. And uh, they did. We had a strong ally in Pakistan that was going to help us on the ground. And above all, 
We had a group on the ground that wanted to fight. So you had a real problem. That makes for what I would call a rather boring movie. It's better to have a rogue congressman and some rogue CIA guy save the world. That fits our James Bond model. And <clears throat> so that's what I didn't like. It wasn't that, you know, that I didn't feel Charlie made a major contribution. I wanted people to understand what it takes to get something done, and it isn't, it isn't that important. Um, they did a History Channel piece, and this isn't true either, but the History Channel piece has them in a hot tub where they got this one, where he's sitting there, Miss America's there, of course, but he's got the TV with Dan Rather on. I mean, like all of a sudden, Dan Rather says something, and Charlie decides he's going to save Afghanistan. So, you know, Hollywood has to do its, its bit. He came out at it, he said the reason he did it was uh, uh, the chairman of the, uh, the Speaker of the House, uh, Wright, another Texan from, uh, said another Democratic Texan said, Charlie, this is yours, watch it. And that's why he did it, not Dan Rather. But I got calls the next day because I I was there when we put the Stinger missiles in, and that's that we could talk about on some length. It changed that war, changed history, uh, contributed to changing um, history. Um, but the, the call that I got was not about the stinger, not about that. It's a Jack, were you in the hot tub with Charlie? <laughs> yeah. The third call you get, you're really angry now because it's like, you know. But my answers were totally unacceptable because, you know, professionally, it's not that I don't like hot tubs, but, you know, this isn't, <laughs> this isn't how you manage a good operational uh, case management. So, um, the third one, I, you know, I knew it, but I could hear the sound and I knew what it meant. Oh, he, he's just that bureaucrat we always thought he was. You know, he doesn't have any zip. So the third one, I said, look, I don't want to talk about him. <laughs> so I left it wide open, except with my wife, Pat, I said I wasn't in that hot tub with Charlie. So um, there is so much more we could talk about. I think I'm going to do just one more vignette, and that's the, the Rick Ames story. Um, and Rick Ames, uh, I happened to know Rick when he was getting ready to go into the career training program. I was coming in a group behind him. And uh, I knew him socially. This is the, the American CIA officer who eventually goes to work for the Russians. And you know, we had interesting discussions. Uh, again, I was coming from a different place. His father was a CIA operative. He lived in... Uh, um, Burma. No, it was a Burma or Thailand. It escapes me the minute. So he had had international experience. He had read, he was a, a rich reader of intelligence books. So he gave me a book called um, A Coffin for Demetrius by Eric Gambler. And Eric Gambler is one of those great <clears throat> clandestine writers about betrayal, and it's, he's one of the best and recognized probably 70 years ago. <coughs> And I gave him a book called The Psychopathology of Leadership, which was written in the 1930s. It's sort of a Freudian uh, psychological piece saying if you're weaned on the left, you're going to be liberal, or weaned on the right, you're going to be a, a Republican. I mean, I'm simplifying it. But what I was interested in is human behavior. If you think of the irony of it, uh, you know, he's talking about espionage. He says that's counterintelligence is the thing you have to do. And I'm saying, no, you need to be influencing the minds of people. 
So if you fast forward 25 years, I didn't see him. Uh, I'd gone to his wedding, but uh, I, he was in Rome when I arrived. He was about to leave. His wife was pregnant, and they decided he could stay a little while longer. I wish they had let him go. Uh, <clears throat> so I ended up running into him again. We had dinner uh, at his house, and we were talking, and he went to the bookcase and pulled out my Robert Laswell's Psychopathology of Leadership. If I'd only gotten him to sign it, I could have paid for one of my grandkids' education. <laughs> but, um, and then I remember telling him, uh, there's actually a book that, uh, I'm not gonna plug the book because it's flawed in my mind, but in there he is interviewed. And he said he and I had a confrontation. I would describe it differently, a one-way confrontation. But he, uh, we had a walk in, a person that came in that was, uh, spoke Russian and we wanted that person briefed to him. Rick, Rick uh, spoke Russian. so. He met the person, and then I, he, he says in this interview that I insisted that he meet him, and then I insisted he meet him in the safe house, and he thought it was unsafe. Even though he's working for the Russians, he's worried about unsafe. There's a certain logic uh, leap here. Um, and that is true, because I believe you can meet an agent anywhere in the world. And if you're not, you know, you've got to go back to remedial ops training. But that, he didn't tell the whole story. The whole story is I wanted him polygraphed. And, uh, and I insisted on it. So when they polygraph, um, you know, you wanted to establish what he knew about penetrations in the U.S. government and all that uh, type of questioning. So it was supposed to be done on the weekend, and I came in Monday morning, and I just happened to run into the polygraph operator. I said, well, how did it go? And he said, oh, God, you wouldn't believe it. We did it seven or six or seven times. You're supposed to come back after the first one and look at the questions because if you do it two, three, you degenerate the entire test. And that's what he did. He wanted to, to destroy the entire test. So he was in a different part of the building. Now, I don't run so fast anymore, but I, I was moving pretty quick. I got, you know, Jack showed up and got in his face and, you know, what are you doing? You know, what is, and what I found most fascinating uh, is there was no physical, I mean, no verbal, any reaction at all was truly passive aggressive. And I had this moment where I was saying, mm, something's wrong, deep resentment here. But that doesn't mean you're a spy, it just means there's, you're a piece of work and I've got to keep a better eye on you. But as the, uh, several years later, I was called by the, the mole hunters, uh, two great women, uh, Sandy Grimes and Gene Vertebrae, and they said, look, we want to meet you, but we can't meet you in your office or our office, and uh, we have a question for you. And so <clears throat> I sat down and said, look, we have a mole inside the agency, and we've got the list narrowed down um, because of information we had. What Rick had done, and he, he had natural reason to go into the Russian embassy because he the FBI would, knew he was going in. We were authorizing him to go in. So even though we were mindful of it, he had a perfect reason. And in his clouded mind, he thought, well, I'll just control the Russians. I'll go in and give them a little bit. Well, I went in and coughed up 11 agents that we had inside the Russian government, and they were all executed. Um, so uh, he did. Uh, 
you know, huge damage to us. So when Gene and Sandy sat down with me, they said, well, could Rick Ames be the mall? And that moment of that resentment, that whatever that was, it's a Spanish word, ojo means watch out. And that snapped back and I said, you know, he is the only CIA employee that I would say yes to that to. And um, it's not that I thought he was, but when you tell me you have a mole and could it be Rick Ames, that moment came back and it was as uh, simple as that. Um, he's sitting in prison uh, where he belongs forever. I'll never leave. Um, he was interviewed and there was a very uh, telling question, I mean, a great question from the woman that was interviewed. She said, well, Rick, did you have trouble sleeping? You know, it's a simple question, right? And his response, ever so slightly delayed, was, you know, I thought I was, but no, I didn't have any trouble sleeping. There's a real psychopath, and that's what we had on, on our hands. Um, so uh, let, me, let me just finish and open up the question. I do put a lot of personal human interest stories of briefing my children on what's, you know, that I'm a spy and not a diplomat, having Italian lessons with my wife and having the temerity to suggest that she used the subjunctive wrong and then watched our Italian book fly out the window on Route 95. Um, so I tried to humanize so people realize that the CIA is made up of people like people in this room, uh, that they're, they're dedicated people, that they, what are the types of things they're doing? And they get a better understanding of how you parse responsibility for the things that you, um, you find areas where they shouldn't be. I would like you to think about how they got into those positions. And I think it's very timely because I think we're going to have some big problems soon on that, just that issue. Jack, thank you so much. <laughs> Jack, I noticed you never did finish the water, and I was hoping it wasn't starting to taste like pumpkin soup. <laughs> okay, we have a couple of mics out there for questions. Okay, and here's one right here. Mr. Devlin, did you have much trouble in the editing process? I mean, did you yes. have to leave much out? Yeah. And did you have problems with the uh, Agency Clearance Publications Board? I did. But not the way you think. <laughs> not, the much. Way, not the way you think. Um, the way you probably think. Um, I know what I could write. In other words, I knew I couldn't write about agents, okay? I know that. And I know that covert action, just like I tell the kids, you're going to read about it. So whether it's Chile, whether it's Afghanistan, whether it's Iran-Contra, whether it's Rick, all of these things are in the public. So that's not where I had a problem. I had one fundamental problem. And it's the same one. And I hope it doesn't, uh, it doesn't uh, disrupt. I, I don't think it does, the, the reading. But... The agency had a problem that I couldn't say I was in certain countries permanently. In other words, I could say I was visiting, but I couldn't say I was there permanently. So tongue in cheek, they, they approved it, their call. But <laughs> tongue in cheek, I'd say, well, I'm in an undisclosed country at the very end of my career after I left the agency. I'm mean, not the agency, left uh, CIA headquarters from their top position. And, and I went overseas to take over an office. 
that I don't think there's anybody above the age of reason that doesn't know we have an office there. But be that as it may, they just dug their heels in. So I signed something, just like Snowden, saying I'm not going to publish anything without your approval. And I had to recast. And it was difficult. there was difficulties, but it wasn't because I was going to give up a source or method. I, I knew where I stood. And we disagreed, but I signed a contract, therefore it's my responsibility to come to terms with them, not vice, vice versa. But I wrote an 11-page memo explaining why everybody knows what you're protecting <laughs> and why you have already approved it. And they came back, and I quoted. It says, and I'm not going to read it, but it says, if you do, it'll do grave damage to our national security. <laughs> and if you Google, you're only one Google away from figuring out where that is. In fact, if you look at the pictures closely, you figure it out. But what can I tell you? Okay. Questions? Right there? Thank you. Just wondering if you had any uh, opinion or view on the Church Commission and the Pike Commission, how that influenced your work and overall how it's influenced the work of the agency? I think the Church Commission, um, I, I actually accept the fact that you know, there should be investigations after, in, but they should be within the intelligence committees in closed quarters, okay? Sometimes you have to question the motivation and what was done. Um, I was just reading the brothers, Alan Dulles and John Foster Dulles. <laughs> they didn't do a lot of oversight. There wasn't a lot of oversight. I was, oh gosh, if I could only be back then, what fun it would be. <laughs> but I know better. I know that oversight is required. And you shouldn't have a problem with an investigation if you've run it through the process the way I believe it should be, which is with oversight. So it did, it slowed the agency down, but sometimes uh, those events then lead to reform and change. Um, you know, we're looking now, you know, I want to get too bogged down on the torture report, okay? Uh, and I'm on the record, have been for years, I just, it's, I think, I don't, it's not that it's not effective, I just don't think that's us and we shouldn't do it. But I think a committee that investigates it should be bipartisan. I think it was a mistake, personally, that the Republicans pulled out of it because it's your best hope of coming up with a solid report. Now, they did it in anger because it wasn't going to be right and so on. But I think the committees, um, you know, you get the right people on them. Um, and usually the, the Congress itself uh, tends to select people of experience and stature for, you know, the Warren Commission. You know, I, I might have exceptions with my own personal taste, but, you know, I, I believe that things are rightfully looked at, but you can't compromise sources and methods. Okay. Another question is right here, uh, Laura, behind you. Midway? Yeah. Right there. Thanks. Yes. <clears throat> Who would you say has done more damage, in your opinion, uh, Jonathan Pollard or Ames? Uh, I only hesitate because I wanted to give it full consideration. I mean, as far as I know, no one's been killed by Pollard. I don't believe any of the information. I mean, Rick Ames took out the entire Russian program. 
and killed 11 people and all the families and problems. In fact, Sandy's book, which I'm not very knowledgeable about the families, goes through the disruptions. So I would have to say, I, I'd put Ames in terms of uh, damage um, uh, at the top. Other uh, right here, Lauren, then one right here. Uh, I've read your book, uh, and I'm also in the middle of reading Kai Bird's book, The Good Spy, about Robert, uh, Robert Ames. Um, he makes the point in that biography that, uh, certainly in Ames's case, but in, maybe in the agency... No, I just want to make clear, it's a yes, different Ames. Different Ames, yeah. completely coincidental last names. Um, that there was more sympathy, maybe that's too strong a word, maybe understanding for the Palestinians and their cause within the agency than there was um, in the U.S. government you know, general public policy position back in the 70s. Do you agree with that? Do you think that was the case? Um, and what do you think the uh, situation is today, especially after the events of the last few weeks and uh, what's happened in Gaza? Yeah. Um, I think it's important to track our own history, socially, culturally, and so on. I'm going to answer this. What's interesting when I look at the agency today, when I joined, there were two women in my class of 50. Today it's 50-50. Very few in senior positions today. In other words, the agency needs to evolve. But if you were going to go back into the 70s, when you, had, when you were a Middle East expert, you tend to be an Arabist. In other words, you studied Arabic, you were, and there was identification. In fact, I would say it went uh, so far that the Israelis complained, I don't know what year it was, and they wanted out of the Middle East Division. In other words, they didn't want to be in the Middle East Division, and they went to the counterintelligence staff. And that's where Angleton, not to get down into the weeds, became popular. So I do think that there was a time and this is probably true with all agencies that had Middle East experts. They tended to be Arabists. But I would tell you by the mid-'80s, Israel was back in the division, and that, you know, that type of issue wasn't, uh, uh, wasn't relevant. Okay? So I don't think that's an issue today, but I think it was an issue at the time. And it, it comes from this... Um, identifying, which the agency tries very hard not to have its people so closely identify. In other words, Americans tend to only stay three years, four years in a post because you don't want clientitis. But in the case of the Middle East, the Arabist and learning the language, there is sometimes, you have to watch that. And you have to watch it, you don't come to identify. But I, I don't see that as a problem today. But it, there was a time, and, but it was consistent with what I would consider public sentiments, and, and particularly amongst those that covered the Middle East. Okay, why don't we take uh, two, two last questions. I know some of you have parking, and also we want to leave time for the signing. Uh, of course, counter-history is always difficult, but how would history ha might, how do you think history would have been different if Aldrich Ames had not existed? Well, that's, i got to tell you, that's a question no one's ever asked me, and I've never given it um, any thought. Um, <laughs> we have a, some colleagues here that you will fill you in later. 
look, there'd be 11 people alive, there'd be 11 good sources. Um, the, you know, sometimes you have to look for silver linings and all bad developments. Did we toughen up our counterintelligence and awareness? I would say that was the positive, but I would rather have not had to do that and kept 11 people alive. So, but we're in a business. This is something people didn't understand when Ames. It was actually sad to watch some of the very senior people at CIA. They thought they had broken the case that they were going to be, you know, awarded medals, that they had found the mole in CIA. So there was great enthusiasm about it. Little did they know that it was going to be turned back on them and say, look, you had a mole. And I think they were shocked. And they, there was a, a, a good PR. Charlie Wilson would have found a way to work that PR piece a lot better. Um, so um, the Ames, the fact that Ames existed, I honestly believed, where's our CI staff? The FBI, FBI guys are here too. They'll walk me out of here. I think we've always had them. <laughs> We're always going to have them. The Russians, best intentions aside, we have them, we will continue to have them. It comes with the territory. So you should never be surprised when you find them. Always say, hey, great, we found one finally, you know. So there is that too as well. All right. Last question right here. Uh, <clears throat> this is more on a personal note. Um, I know living abroad, you face a lot of different circumstances and having your wife and your six children, how safe did they feel? And how safe did you feel having your wife and children there? Face I describe what I consider my worst personal judgment in that, in that box. My only defense is I was young, but there's a lesson in it. I was, uh, the country was falling apart, Chile. And they bombed the house next to us and missed and landed in my yard, blew off the plaster in the wall. We thought it was an earthquake and life went on. Um, <coughs> so the country was, and you're a country and there's banners flying and there's bombings and, you know, the problem is you get used to it. And this is the problem in, in embassies <laughs> abroad. The people on the ground sometimes are not the best judge because they, you know, the water's getting colder and they don't realize suddenly you have hypothermia, you know. So sometimes that decision has to be made in Washington. So I remember this like it was yesterday. I had a shotgun, uh, and I'm a lousy shot, my wife is much better. Um, <laughs> you gotta worry about that, but uh, I said, look, Pat, I could be stuck in the embassy. And look, if they come through the door, let's, we'll move the sofa here, we'll put the sofa down here, now you get down. When they come through the door, you aim for the chest, because you're gonna, you know, if you aim for the head, it's less chance. Now, remember, at that point we had five children, and you put the kids up in this attic, it's, that all made perfect sense to me. <laughs> it made perfect sense to her. And it was so outlandish in the context like what really should have happened, look, it's getting bad, go home. But when you're there and you're in it, you think somehow it's, it's manageable. Now, I hope I would never make that mistake again and was careful when looking at and responsible for other people that I wouldn't make it. But I guarantee you when you're in it and you're young, you're not thinking about getting hurt, that it isn't going to happen to you. And that was my worst personal, and I would say almost a judgment call ever. Now, I was stuck in the embassy for three or four days. I mean, I couldn't get out. Uh, another fellow, they were going to they were, they were raid 
the house next to us. And, you know, when you raid, weapons are fired, and at that point, a helicopter was hovering over, and one of our CIA colleagues got in a car, picked up my wife and dog, and five kids, and he was locked in. They were locked in the house together, and I was in the embassy for three or four days. So it can get, uh, can get hairy, but you also, um, when you're young, you just take bigger risk, on, and that's why headquarters. You ever wonder why they created headquarters? That's why. Yeah. <laughs> Jack, you're, you're always going to be young. Thank you so much for joining us today. Great to have you. I hope you enjoyed this author debriefing. We'd like to know if you have any questions or comments about it. You can get in touch with us through email at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. We look forward to you joining us again for another of our author debriefings. And thanks for listening. Hi, everybody. It's Maria Varmazas here, your host over at T-Minus Space Daily and sometimes a guest on Hacking Humans, too. We here at N2K CyberWire work hard to bring you concise, intelligence-driven news and commentary, and we'd like to know how we're doing. Please take a few minutes to complete our audience survey and share your feedback to help us continue to grow and meet your needs. Visit cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com survey to get started. Thanks so much for your input as we reach for the stars. It means the universe to us. Thank you.